I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I now understand it was a sham. The instant the elders put me in that cell, I was doomed. The elders had made an announcement and word had spread. Abigail Weaver's daughter had committed matricide. You know, that strange one. Of course she had. We must withhold judgment until the trial, but... Of course she had. My only source of kindness was Elder Rice, and even then, he was careful to be discreet. How could he still believe in me? When it seemed the rest of the town had gone mad. He came to visit me in the nights leading up to the trial. He would pull a chair right up to the bars of my cell and listen while I knelt before him, weeping about my uncertain future. I think I will hang, I said one night. He shook his head and extended a hand into my cell. I balked. He waited patiently. I tentatively put my hand in his, and he squeezed gently. Look at me, he commanded mildly. I did, and he studied my face for a long time before he spoke. I will not let that happen. I will protect you. You are so special, so different from the people here. They don't understand that you simply burn too brightly. In that moment, I did not feel the stone ground digging into my ankles. I did not feel the sweat and grime layered on my skin. I only felt... chosen. Seen. Elder Rice represented all that was good and holy, and he deemed me not only innocent, but... special. Hope bubbled in my chest. His visits, his hand on my shoulder in the woods, his intense stares all flashed in my mind. Could you take me away from here? I murmured. Could he leave his post as an elder and perhaps start a life with me somewhere else? I had nothing else to lose, and he stood to lose everything. I cradled the shred of hope to my chest and waited for an answer. He swallowed and looked down at my hand. I can protect you. The hope died, and I pulled my hand away. He reached into the cell and grabbed my chin, forcing my gaze to his. Don't feel ashamed for asking, he said. I didn't feel shame before, but now I did. How could I have expected him to risk it all for me? I was no one special. I felt stupid for assuming. He continued. I will clear your name. Haven will forgive you. I pulled back and snarled. You're killing me then. I retreated to my cot and he gave up on trying to speak with me. I did not hear him leave, but when I woke up in the middle of the night, the chair was empty. The night before the trial, the moon was high and a beam of light sliced into my cell. I was sitting on my cot and staring into the beam, trying to 
think of nothing. When I heard his footsteps, I braced myself, ready for more disappointment. Then I heard the jingling of keys, and my cell door was open. I leapt to my feet, and there he was, Elder Rice, to take me away. To my dismay, he held up a hand, indicating that I should wait, and entered my cell. He closed the door behind him. I waited, confused. He swept me into an embrace, and I relaxed into his arms. My mother was dead, and I was falsely imprisoned for the crime of killing her, and I grabbed at the scrap of kindness like a half-starved beggar. He announced excitedly that he had found a way to save me, and waited for me to ask what it was. I hadn't even gotten the words all the way out when he interrupted me, too proud of his plan to wait. It would be exile. This would at least buy him some time to help the rest of the council see reason and let tempers die down. He couldn't give me a specific amount of time, just not long. Disappointment sat like lead on my chest, but he was so excited with his plan, I did not want to seem ungrateful. After all, as he reminded me, he was risking so much simply proposing exile. What if the other elders suspected something? I would be doomed. So I'll be safe, I asked. You'll be safe, he answered. All of Haven showed up to the trial. The elders descended from their box to present evidence. The town and I learned about the death of my mother. She had been bludgeoned on the back of the head. I had been poisoned by pokeweed root in my tea. And wasn't it interesting that I was the daughter of an herbalist and that I didn't drink a lethal dose? Only enough to incapacitate me momentarily and to, say, throw suspicion off of me? Now keep in mind that these elders were not hypothesizing anything. They were simply stating interesting facts. I don't think I even believed it then. I kept trying to catch Elder Rice's eyes, but he studiously avoided looking at me. Then came deliberation. Elder Fine shouted that I should hang, and the other elders chimed in, excited to dole out justice and be done with it. My ears rang and the room swam in front of me. Exile no longer seemed like a disappointment. I wanted nothing more in the whole world. Elder Rice raised a hand, and they quieted. Surely we're not to sentence this young woman to death, to do what we ourselves condemn? The Creator urges us to forgive. He paused, and then looked at me. My heart soared. Then, as if the idea was just occurring to him, perhaps a life in exile is a fitting punishment? The other elders leaned back, mulling over the idea. If we send her outside the walls of Haven, we are allowing the Creator to mete out punishment as he sees fit. And those disciples who would mistake their own words for his were taken by the crows. He paused meaningfully. If we were to attempt to act on his behalf and hang this girl... He let his words hang in the air. It is her nature to be volatile. A child, victim of her own whims, agreed Elder Harris. Elder Rice nodded indulgently. The wilds are dangerous. No one who's left has returned, mused Elder Fine. But at this point, I was barely listening. It was working. Elder Rice was convincing them to spare me. 
The decision was made and the audience was disappointed that they wouldn't be able to attend my hanging, but they were pleased with the general result. I was loaded into the carriage, and Elder Rice rode with me to the hermit's hut. I thanked him profusely and praised his plan, and he held my hands and made beautiful promises. My name would be cleared. I would come home. My life could return to as it was. But that was the thing. My life could not return to what it was. My mother was dead. I had seen the faces of Haven sneering and begging for my death. Elder Rice and I... I did not understand where we stood. He said he risked so much for me, and I knew he cared for me. But by virtue of his position, he refused to provide any clarity as to what I was to him. I had never heard Blackbird speak my name. And I began to wonder if I was ever supposed to. And so I trudged onwards in silly satin slippers and a soiled wedding dress. I didn't think of this journey as going home anymore. I needed to see Haven again with my new eyes. I needed answers and something else. An urge tickled the back of my mind. Revenge? I was surprised at the thought and at how much it fueled me. I ate handfuls of foraged blackberries and butternuts and continued my feverish journey east. My progress slowed when I reached the banks of an enormous, glassy lake. I scanned the horizon, shading my eyes with the flat of my hand. No end in sight. I knew this was not an ocean because that would be impossible. We had traveled by carriage. I had not crossed the sea. A sign marked Ferry pointed south down a footpath. So I went south. The path curved sharply as it sloped downwards, and I was faced with a cavern that was previously hidden from view. The mouth of the cave glittered with deep purple geodes. At the cave's entrance, a sign. Ferry across via Mudguppy. I heard brisk footsteps from behind me. I turned, readying myself for hostility. An older portly man dressed in a brown suit and bucket hat flinched, clutching a briefcase to his chest. My goodness, can't a man catch the ferry without harassment? He shook his head and scurried past me. Ferry? To where? He looked at me incredulously over his shoulder and gestured vaguely towards the sign. Across! And with that, he disappeared into the cave smaller and smaller reflections of him bouncing in the facets of the geodes. Frankly, I was relieved he wanted nothing to do with me. I followed him into the cave. The path was at a fairly steep grade, and I had to step quickly to keep up with him. Blue-green fungi glowed in clusters, and the geodes grew bigger and bigger, until one glassy facet reached the size of a dressing mirror. I avoided my reflection. The path curved around a particularly large crystal and emptied out onto the banks of an enormous underground lake. The ceiling above was so high the jade-green stone looked like velvet. The violet sand beneath my feet glittered. A tired-looking dock swayed in the muted blue water. A large wooden ship was moored to the end of the dock, and a line of passengers was boarding up its ramp. 
A banner draped across the side of the ship was stitched with a tremendous fish leaping out of the water, a seabird in its jaws. In Haven, we had learned of the massive vessels of before that crossed tumultuous seas to strange lands. But the people of Haven were lucky that all they could need lay within Haven's walls, and we no longer had to depend on an explorer's hope. A small clapboard structure squatted to the right. The man in front of me hurried to an open window and received a small slip. Then he scuttled down the dock and waited to board. I approached the window, feeling dejected. The board clerk held out a hand and did not raise her eyes to me. She was putting together the pieces of a puzzle. A lighthouse, I think. I'm sorry, I have no money and nothing to trade. I admitted, and she rolled her eyes. She pointed to a sign with a practiced motion. Mud Guppy Express. Passage across. Fair, just one memory. I looked at her dubiously. I'm sure you've got something you can give up, she said, as if she'd said it thousands of times. Give me your hand. I tentatively put my hand in hers. I wondered what memory she would take. I racked my mind, and for reasons I didn't know, a memory surfaced. Sunlight. My mother's large hand and my tiny one. And being happy. And... I don't know what else. It's gone now. The next thing I knew, my eyes were wet, and the clerk had pulled her hand away. Oh, child, you overpaid. But no refunds. She pointed at another sign that indeed said, no refunds. She handed me a slip and motioned to the dock. The ship will be across by morning. Happy travels. I examined the slip. Admit one. Seventeen. I tucked the slip into my dress. I followed the other passengers, the planks beneath my feet groaning in fatigue. As I set foot on the deck, the ramp raised behind me. The others wore simple attire, and none were drenched in old blood. I smoothed my grimy dress self-consciously. The passengers filed through a door. I followed and found myself in a dining hall. A long table was laden with food and almost groaned under the weight of it. A stack of plates towered by the door. The people in front of me took plates and filled them with food, sitting down at the nearby tables to eat. I was extremely excited, but I wanted to seem civilized. Also, everyone else seemed to think this was very normal, so I kept my trembling to a minimum. I did, however, fill two plates with towers of food. I marched to a table and plopped down in the nearest chair, gorging on my meal. I was indiscriminately stuffing food into my mouth for some time when I realized that the table had grown silent. You were saying, Captain? Prompted an elegantly dressed woman across from me. Her lip curled as she took me in. I followed her gaze to the man sitting next to me. Ah. What could only be the captain of this vessel was watching me with laughter in his eyes. Excuse me. I muttered, my face hot. I began to gather my plates and felt a strong hand on my forearm. Please, said the captain. Stay and eat. All are welcome. He shot a reproving look at the woman who had spoken. She pursed her lips. Tentatively, I put my plates back on the table and sat. I observed for a bit, and the people sitting at the table slowly began eating again, 
so I did too. After only two bites, I felt eyes on me again. The captain smirked at me lazily. His vest and breeches looked expensive and well-tailored, but he wore them in purposeful disarray, the buttons of his vest askew and his messy brown hair curling over his brow. His large hands toyed with a polished silver fork. You've been through a bit of a tumble. I swallowed a huge bite of potatoes and they stuck in my throat. I grabbed a glass of wine and gulped it down. The man next to me protested weakly, reaching for his glass. What makes you think that? I asked. I was a little too tired to humor an observation that obvious. He looked at me blankly for a few moments and then burst out laughing, his head thrown back and his wide shoulders shaking. I smiled briefly. She's funny, he declared. The others at the table smiled in deference. He clapped his hands. We need to find her something less bloody to wear. I'm sure you don't want to be wearing that for the rest of your days. Richards, I'm sure we have something in the crew's quarters that's not in use anymore. The man whose wine I took nodded. He reached for his glass again. Now? He grinned and looked at the rest of the table with a disbelieving shake of his head. We've got schedules to keep my good man, purses and bellies to fill. The other passengers tittered appreciatively. Richards ambled to his feet. Miss, if you'll come with me. The table looked at me expectantly. I stood and excused myself. Richard slouched to the back of the dining hall and I followed. We went down narrow stairs, up ladders, through hallways, and finally down a rope into a small dank room. Hammocks and bedding hung from the rafters, and chests were screwed to the floor. Without hesitation, Richards opened one of the chests and gestured for me to take its contents. Clothes, of different sizes and quality probably from different people. The ship lurched, and I grabbed a post for support. Richards cleared his throat. If you'll hurry, miss, we're pushing off and I have much to attend to. I very politely requested privacy, but inwardly I was shocked that he didn't think to give it to me. He nodded and turned to face the wall. I selected what looked closest to my size. A pair of worn breeches and a loose white shirt and sash, and boots that were a little too large, but preferable to my slippers. I quickly changed, leaving my old clothes on the ground. I did not want them anymore. I clutched my ticket and put it into the pocket of my breeches. My fingers brushed a scrap of fabric. I pulled it out to examine it. A bird's claw clutched a fish, its talons digging into the scaly sides. Richards coughed lightly and asked if I was done. I jumped and guiltily stuffed the scrap in my pocket. I wasn't sure why, but I didn't want him to see it. I reassured him that it was safe to turn around, and we returned to the deck of the ship. He asked me if I needed anything else, and it was obvious that he hoped that I did not. I assured him that I would be fine, left to my own devices, and he was gone. The atmosphere was lively. Barefoot sailors perched on poles, adjusting rails and rigging. Others strapped down cargo, shouting crude things while groups of ladies huddled at the side of the ship and giggled. The captain strolled the deck languorously, surveying the scene with a bemused smile. A sailor approached and whispered something in his ear, and he nodded curtly and descended the steps into the depths of the ship. Watch out, miss! shouted a sailor. Without thinking, 
I jumped to the side and landed on some netting. A pile of crates, suspended by ropes, had tipped. I watched numbly as one of the crates crashed to the deck, splintering open, narrowly missing me. A side of the crate blew off on impact and landed on my leg. Stunned, I flexed my foot and was relieved to find that I was fine, while the deck exploded in a cacophony. Then the captain was at my side, checking my joints with practiced fingers. When he asked if I was injured, his voice was panicked, the lazy self-assuredness from earlier gone. His tan face was drawn and sweaty. He looked to the water and the sky, but the lake was still a glassy slate blue, and the sky a quiet green. He turned to the sailors, who were watching and quiet and very still. He mopped his brow with his sleeve, and he was on his feet again, an easy smile on his face. Careful now, boys. We can't arrive with our passengers in pieces. He said it with a laugh, but it echoed into the silence. Back to it, he shouted. Warily, the sailors got back to work, and the passengers back to milling around and getting in the way. I realized my fists had been clenched tightly, and I relaxed my grip. I hoped that all of the bad luck was now out of the way. The captain retreated down the stairs again, and soon the mess was cleaned up, and it was as if it had never happened, except for the crack in the plank where the crate had fallen. Deciding to avoid more falling crates, I ventured to the side of the ship and gripped the railing, and watched the water. The dock was far behind us now, and I could not see the edge of the lake on any side, I closed my eyes and sighed. I heard a small splash, and my eyes flew open. A gray shadow swirled in the water. Then, what looked like a hand surfaced briefly, and the shadow was gone. My heart thumped in my throat. I looked around wildly. Did you see? But the sailors were shouting and lifting, and the passengers were smiling and laughing, and it was very clear that no, they did not see. I looked back at the water, and it was still. The only disturbance, the gentle wake left by the ship. I studied my hands, and something else caught my eye. Carved into the railing was the symbol from the fabric in my pocket. I searched the deck again, my fingers tracing the symbol. Another symbol, on a barrel near a doorway. I peered through, and there was another. Faint, but it was there, right on the wall of the hallway, shoulder height. I cautiously stepped into the cool interior of the ship, and the din outside fell away. A new noise. Hushed voices. Urgent. I followed the source and came to a dead end. A stack of crates, and that was it. A line of scrapes on the floor had me thinking. I pressed my ear to the crates. Yes. Voices. What could they be talking about? As quietly as I could, I inched the crates towards me and revealed an empty space. Throwing a glance over my shoulder, I slipped behind the crates. The space was dark, but a soft light glowed ahead. I crept towards the light and came upon a small room. I crouched behind a barrel and listened. The voices of a man and woman. She's somewhere on this ship, insisted the woman. Somewhere we haven't searched yet. A man, 
Well, if we'd have found her, we wouldn't be meeting like this, would we? The woman again. We haven't much time. And then their voices dropped, and I strained to hear, and I leaned on the barrel, and the netting on top of it slipped, and they were on me and dragging me into the light. A banner with the symbol from my scrap of fabric hung on the wall. The man had my upper arms tighten his grasp, and the woman brandished a small dagger. He sent a spy, he growled. He was missing more teeth than he had, and his face was greasy. Wait, I gasped. Wait, 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 and fished out the scrap of fabric from my pocket. It fluttered to the floor, and the woman bent to pick it up. She examined it for a moment, and then gestured to the man, and he released me. Why didn't you just say you were here for the mutiny? She asked. I gulped. A mutiny? I didn't really have any opinions about if the captain should be overthrown, and if so, by whom. But I also saw the value in not being stabbed, so I just shook my head. Yes, well, have a seat. You're late, but you know the drill. She unrolled a blueprint of the ship onto a crate. The true captain is somewhere on this ship, and she needs our help. The woman's pale blue eyes bore into mine. It's almost time for the lotto, and we're nowhere, muttered the man, and took off his cap, revealing sparse gray hair. They looked to me. Well, we'd best get going, then, I contributed. Exactly, said the man. We're wasting too much time planning and talking and not doing enough to find her. Fine, snapped the woman. We have some time to look on the way to the lotto. I can't believe we cut it this close. I'll go around the bridge, and you, she pointed to me, search the rest of the quarterdeck on your way out. I'll take steerage, volunteered the man, and we'll meet at the lotto, hopefully with the true captain in tow. They nodded, and we headed for the door. The hallway split and they went down the left path, towards the light of the deck. I followed, and they stopped. The man turned to me. Stop trying to shirk your duties. You've got quarterdeck. He motioned to the dark hallway behind me. He leaned towards me conspiratorially, though I don't blame you. But the quicker you search, the quicker she's back. Then he turned and followed the woman out of the shadows and onto the deck. I gulped and peered down the right corridor. Black. I advanced into the darkness with prickles on the back of my neck and my palms sweaty. Soon I came upon a door, and I tried the handle. It clicked, and the door swung open. I cringed, waiting for... something? But it was quiet. The quarters were beautiful. The wood and brass fixtures were polished and gleaming. The bed was large and overflowed with plush bedding. A tall silver jug stood propped next to a white porcelain wash basin. A thick patterned rug cushioned my footsteps. Three empty wine glasses sat on a golden tray, accompanied by a plate of discarded beef bones from the smell of them and a dirty carving fork. I crept over to a door and swung it open, flinching. Clothes, waistcoats, silk shirts, scarves. I felt silly. Smiling to myself, I walked over to another door and swung it open. My stomach dropped. Some kind of shrine, but not to the creator. Something else. The shrine itself was carved of some kind of black stone, and when I reached for it, the hair on my arms stood up. A golden goblet sat on one end, the inside of the cup stained deep red. The rest of the shrine was covered in droopy pillar candles, not the center 
a statue with her hands outstretched. It was a woman, nude. In between her breasts, another set of arms extended, and all four hands held a baby. The baby's mouth was open, and out of its mouth burst spidery legs, clawing at the air. Suddenly, footsteps in the hallway. I stood quickly and returned to the cabin, closing the doors to the shrine behind me. I scanned the room in a panic. I seized the food tray just as the cabin door swung open, and I was met with a very bored-looking Richards. I'm just cleaning up, I supplied stupidly. My fingers hovered over the fork on the tray. How desperate was I? You're late for the lotto, said Richards. I exhaled. I returned my hand to the side of the tray and started for the door, but he put a hand up. Leave it, he ordered. I turned away from him and put the tray down obediently, but slipped the fork into my sleeve. He motioned for me to follow and stepped into the hall. He ushered me back onto the deck, where the passengers and crew were gathered in a circle, clutching their entry slips. The captain stood in the center, holding a tri-corner hat upside down in the crook of his arm. All right, now that all of us are finally here, the lotto can commence, he drawled, then shot a nervous glance upwards. Clouds had gathered, and the green stone above was no longer visible. Every once in a while, the ship lurched, and people gripped railings and poles to keep from falling over. The captain nodded to Richards, and he fished a stick of chalk from his pocket. He drew a large circle on the deck. The captain presented the hat, and a nervous tremor ran through the crowd. He pulled a slip from the hat. Sixteen! He called out. Silence. Some quietly consulted their slips. Then a man entered the circle. It was the man in the brown suit that I had followed into the cave. His face was gray, and his eyes were downcast. He knelt in the center of the circle. I pulled out my slip. My hands were wet with sweat. The crowd swelled with anticipation. The captain pulled again. Twelve! I unfolded my slip, relieved at the smeared seventeen. A woman cried out in horror, a scuffle, and she was shoved into the circle. She screamed and attempted to escape, but the crowd closed in on her and she backed into the center, crying pitifully. The captain pressed a hand to her shoulder, and she knelt next to the man. She turned her face to the clouds, her mouth moving noiselessly. The captain pulled again. Seventeen! I felt nothing but the roaring in my ears. I fumbled to fold my slip, but a man next to me shouted, It's her! It's her! And I was shoved by desperate hands to the circle. I stumbled into the strong arms of the captain. He took me in with regret in his eyes. It's a shame. You burn bright, he said. And those words made me feel so sick. Then he shrugged. It's probably why they want you. He pressed me to my knees next to the sniveling woman. I felt the weight of the carving fork in my sleeve and wondered if I really had the courage to do anything with it. Then the captain pulled a large, black, wicked-looking blade from his belt. The fork felt very small and very stupid. 
He waved the blade above his head, and the crowd lowered their heads. He turned his face to the clouds. Gignit salutum sacrificare, et dabo tenebras super sanguinem. Et dabo tenebras super sanguinem. A massive wave crashed into the side of the boat. Water sprayed the deck, but no one besides those in the circle seemed affected. The boat began to tip. In unison, the crowd braced itself as if it were one being. I scrabbled on the deck, digging my fingers between the planks and somehow held on. The boat crashed back down and the crowd swayed, unbothered. The sails cracked in the wind, and the clouds opened a deluge from their pregnant bellies. The captain screamed into the storm. Parse nobis, domnientibus! Lightning struck, and the whole ship was lit as if in daylight. The captain's face was twisted and ugly. He feverishly grabbed the man and in one smooth motion slit his throat. At first, there was nothing. Just a white slice across his throat. Then blood poured out of the slit. He flopped down onto his side and blood gushed out of his mouth and neck and was carried by the rain off of the deck and into the lake. Another flash of lightning, and the captain turned to the woman in me. His teeth were bared in a crazed grin. The blood on his hands shimmered black. He lurched towards the woman and she moaned, her lips still moving in frenzied gibberish. He planted himself behind the woman and raised his knife to the sky again. My heart thundered in my chest and electricity buzzed at the base of my skull. Although I made no specific plans to do so, I was up on my feet and on his back, stabbing the carving fork into his shoulder. He yowled and dropped his blade. He reached for me, and I yanked the fork out and brought it down again. All I felt was rage, and it felt so good. I wanted to keep feeling it, and I knew that killing this man would keep the rage burning. But that scared me, so my arm stopped right before the tines plunged into his neck. A woman forced herself into the circle, and I realized it was the blue-eyed woman who wanted mutiny. Yes, we've got him! Tell us where the true captain is! To be frank, I had forgotten about their true captain, and it seemed a little silly to care about this when we were in the middle of a deadly storm and a man lay dead but still bleeding before us. The rest of the crowd stood still, waiting. Richards readied himself, but the captain waved his hand. No, we can only sacrifice those that have been chosen. He eyed the mutinous woman. Tell this girl to let me go. She'll kill all of us, you know that. She pushed on. Where is she, false captain? I pressed the tines of the fork into his neck hard enough to draw blood, and he stiffened. He looked to the water, which had darkened to a pitch black. If I tell you, she lets me go. The woman shrugged. You'll go in the brig, but you'll survive. You've doomed us. The woman nodded to me, and I pressed into his neck. Stateroom 9! Stateroom 9! She's in Stateroom 9! The woman nodded and left. I held on to the captain, unsure if I should release him. The woman kneeling next to me began to cough. The captain looked over at her warily. She coughed again. <laughs> 
He moaned. It's too late. The woman coughed harder and put her hands to her throat. The skin at her throat stretched, as if something sharp were pushing on her skin from the inside. She coughed again, and then threw her head back, her eyes wild. A blue, spindly claw burst through her skin, followed quickly by another. Another spidery leg burst from her belly, and she arched impossibly towards the sky. A ragged, inhuman scream erupted from her while more legs burst from her body. She cracked and twisted, her skin splitting open for more of whatever was inside of her. Finally, she stopped. Another strike of lightning illuminated her in all of her terrible glory. Before us towered a giant, spiny crab, donned in the split, taut skin of the woman. The only part of her left mostly intact was her head, which now hung upside down, the eyes of the crab rising from her chin. Feathery feelers and several sets of mandibles undulated out of her open mouth, testing the air. The captain wrenched himself from my grasp and ran towards the monster. With one sweep of a claw, he was thrown into the air, smacking into a pole and sliding to the deck, unconscious or possibly dead. Sailors shouted and ran at the crab while I stood rooted to the deck. Their weapons bounced off of her back uselessly, and their bodies soared into the lake as she shook them off. She squared herself at me and roared. I stood frozen. And then she was on me, pinning me to the ground, her claw grabbing me about the ribs and squeezing, squeezing so tightly. The pressure was unbearable, and I was sure that I would be crushed. She held me to her face, her mandibles reaching for me greedily. I was face to face with her new eyes, and I saw no trace of intelligence or humanity there. I stabbed the carving fork at one of her eyes and missed, the stalk of her eye catching between the two tines. I yanked the fork back, and she shrieked as her eye anchored the fork, and the stalk stretched, her claw's grip loosening briefly. I gulped a lungful of air and pulled as hard as I could. The joint of the eye stalk tore slowly, and I held tightly to the fork as she thrashed. She attempted to pull me away from her face, but doing so wrenched her eye out. Blue blood burst from her head and sprayed me in the face, and she threw me to the ground in fury. I scrabbled to my feet, clutching the fork in front of me. The eye plopped to the ground. The rain pelted down, washing the blood into my eyes. It stung. She turned and rushed a sailor, wasting no time. She grabbed him with her claws and started feeding his arm into her mouth. She crunched down, and he screamed. I looked around. People were shouting. There was the sharp smell of blood in the air. A passenger near the railing readied himself with a pistol, taking aim at the crab. Then, from behind him, Mottled gray hands wrapped around his torso and dragged him over the edge of the railing. In his struggle, the pistol fired, and a sailor dropped to the ground. The passenger's legs disappeared over the railing, and he stopped screaming. Then the gray hands slapped onto the railing again, and I was too afraid to look at what was boarding the ship. The crab was still gorging on the man, who was now up to the shoulder in the monster's maw. 
This terrible beast was unlike any horror I had ever seen, and her gruesomeness tore at the edges of my sanity. The electricity in my skull felt like the buzzing of cicadas, and all I knew was that I had to destroy her lest I be consumed by madness. I rushed the crab, who was engrossed with her meal. I ran up the sailor's body and planted myself on her back, stabbing as hard as I could, aiming for the hole where her eye stalk had been. I missed, and the fork glanced off of her shell. My arms bounced back, and the butt of the fork hit me in the cheek. A white mist burst across my vision. Tears sprung to my eyes, and I let out a ragged sob. Straining through the fog, I stabbed again, and this time I hit my mark. The crab reared back, howling in 1,000 voices. I held tightly to the fork and twisted, using all of my strength to stir like the crab was a cup of tea. The crab shuddered and collapsed, and the man wrenched himself from her jaws, pressing his left hand to the stump of his right. I slid off of her back to the deck and surveyed the damage. Passengers and sailors were either huddled in fear or fighting off the gray monsters boarding the boat. I sat with the man with the slit throat and the dead crab in the middle of the circle, while blood and madness rained down around us. And then, dread. My throat began to itch. I coughed. It felt like I had swallowed a fishbone. My mouth tasted briny. I pressed a shaking hand to my throat, and to my horror, the skin moved. My brain tingled with a dull hunger. And then a madness eclipsed my thoughts. An excitement of becoming. I coughed again. And then a woman stepped out onto the deck from the stairs below. She carried herself with the same easy confidence the captain did. She surveyed the deck grimly. From the other side of the deck, Richard shouted something I couldn't hear over the chaos. My throat burned, and I wanted to tear through my skin to ease the itching. The woman nodded at Richards and stalked towards him, meeting him in the middle of the circle. He gestured wildly, panic in his eyes. She nodded, then pulled a saber from her belt and slit his throat. His eyes rolled stupidly, and he grabbed weakly at his throat. I clutched my own, the movement under my skin more frantic. Blood spurted onto the deck, the rain taking it overboard. Then, it all stopped. The rain let up, and the water calmed. My throat stopped itching. I felt my skin, but nothing moved against my fingers. The gray monsters slid off of the deck and into the water. The silence roared in my ears. The woman pointed at Richards with her blade and looked up. And there's your third! The woman walked over to the captain and prodded him with her boot. He stirred, but did not awaken. She shook her head with mild disgust. <sighs> Very messy, brother. At least when I'm captain, only those who are chosen die. My stomach sank. I expected her to be a savior, but her casual words bothered me. She took his tri-corner hat from the floor and flipped it upside down. Waterlogged slips plopped out. She placed the hat on her own head. Not to worry. The true captain is here and just in time for our arrival. 
she announced jovially. And sure enough, a shore was in sight. I felt lightheaded with relief, but still confused. I touched the smooth skin of my neck again and took in the shoreline. Some of the crew cheered weakly and began to clean up the deck. They dropped the crab and other bodies unceremoniously into the water. And curiously, they sank immediately and never returned to the surface. Business returned to normal, as it was before the lotto. And the passengers and sailors seemed to have forgotten the entire ordeal. I leaned on the railing, my knees weak and my thoughts wispy like cheesecloth. A sailor announced land ho, and anchors were ready. I turned to look. The little dock promised solid land, an escape from this cursed ship. All right, he goes into the brig, the new captain said, motioning at her brother. Sailors carried the old captain down the stairs. Something gnawed at me. I approached the captain. That's it? He goes in the brig? I asked. She gave me barely a second glance. I'm sorry, miss, but I have much work to do. I have to prepare for the next lotto and his mutiny, and then, of course, mine. I could not have heard that correctly. The next lotto. She frowned. What are you on about? I've got schedules to meet, so if you don't mind. She turned to leave. I grabbed her arm. You mean this will all happen again? You're just... the same? She looked at me incredulously and spoke as if I were a child. Yes, that's how it goes. There must be a different way to get across. You can change things! She studied me. Are you feeling all right? Probably some side effects from almost being sacrificed. Happy flip of the coin for you that Richards was closer when I came out, eh? I stared at her, dumbfounded. She rolled her eyes and then smiled as if she were humoring me. If we broke the cycle, we wouldn't know what would happen. It's better to arm yourself against an enemy you know. She patted me on the shoulder and left, yelling to some sailor to raise or lower some sail. I wasn't listening. The ship moored, and we disembarked. I walked on wobbly legs down the dock, her words echoing in my ears. That ship's reality was filled with horrors. Every trip across the lake. Mollifying themselves with the farce of mutiny. I looked back at the ship over my shoulder. Relief washed over me, and I continued onward. Down a path unknown. Exile was written, performed, produced, and mixed by me, Kelly Nugent. The beautiful music that elevates this story to something I could have never imagined it could be was composed by the ever-talented Annalise Nelson. If you liked this show, please, please, please leave a kindly review on Apple Podcasts or tell your lover or friend or enemy about this show, uh, I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening.